Leaders are like restaurants. People love them when they are good, but hate them when they are bad. Have you known this to be true? Think about your experiences at restaurants. Can you remember the worst experiences that you've had? Perhaps it was the incarnation of Murphy's Law. We've talked about that in the past, that everything that could go wrong did go wrong. You waited forever to be seated. Uh, The waiter was inattentive and had too many tables. And everything you ordered came out nearly inedible. At the same time, can you remember your best experiences at restaurants? When the staff made you feel extra welcome? And when the food was delicious, maybe the best steak you've ever had in your life? I wonder about those experiences if you told other people about those restaurants, both good and both bad. Now, if there's anything that proves that people love restaurants when they are good and hate them when they're bad, if there's anything that proves that, it is online reviews. (laughs) Writing about a bad, fancy restaurant in Chicago, one Yelp reviewer says this, I plan to write a long, blistering review since we had a terrible experience, but this restaurant is so not worth it, all caps, very common, the bad reviews. The highlight of the meal was a busboy smuggling us two cheese sticks from the bar as we waited close to an hour between courses. The cheese sticks were delish. (laughs) Another reviewer writes of how much he loved an Italian restaurant. He writes this. Their baked delicacies are as light and fluffy as the feathers of a thousand unicorn wings. (laughs) Their marinara is so vibrant and tangy, it's as if the sun and Mars crashed into one another in a glorious fusion of effervescent wonder. Their meat is so tender and succulent, it can turn the strictest and purest of vegans into a violent carnivorous beast. That guy sold me. I want to find that restaurant. (laughs) Well, this is the same with leaders. People can't stand them when they're bad, but love them when they're good. Consider God's warning through the prophet Samuel when the people of Israel clamored for a king just like the kings of the nations around them. God warned in 1 Samuel chapter 8, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But then consider the words we read earlier from 2 Samuel 23, David's last words. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. 
So like the other components of a local church that we've discussed in previous weeks, whether it's the local church itself or church membership or church discipline, we've seen how these things can be used well and how they can be used poorly. Leadership in the church is no different. If we keep the restaurant analogy, the solution to bad restaurants is not to get rid of the idea of restaurants altogether. Neither is the solution to bad church leadership to get rid of the idea of leadership and authority altogether. Further, we must keep in mind that just like restaurants don't have to be expensive, don't have to be the fanciest in order to be good, so also church leaders don't have to have the most charisma or the most giftedness in order to be used by the Lord effectively. Not every restaurant is Morton's. Neither is every pastor Charles Spurgeon. But this does not throw off God's plan for his church. In fact, it's a part of his plan for his church. So in all the components of how a church runs, or the preaching, the ordinances, what a church is as like an embassy of the kingdom, membership and discipline, we need to see how the Bible presents leaders fitting into that. And I think that God's purpose of leaders in the church can be summarized something like this. You'll find it printed in your bulletins, the main point. God uses humble, loving leadership for our good, our growth, and his glory. Humble, loving leadership for our good, our growth, and his glory. Like we've done with other components of the local church, we're going to take this one and kind of dissect it, investigate it. Searching the scriptures so that we can have a fuller idea of what this is. Since we're already familiar with the concept of leadership and authority itself, we'll begin on the front end asking why does God give authority and leadership in the first place? Then we'll clarify who the leaders in the church are. And finally, we'll wrap up with explaining what leaders in local churches do and how those functions help a church to thrive. So before we hop in, just a disclaimer. One of my consistent prayers when I prepare to preach a sermon, when I preach a sermon, um, is for God to help me be honest throughout the process, to apply what I am preaching first to myself before I apply it to other people. And that prayer was especially relevant this week. By preaching on what an elder is, my goal is not to prop up myself as one who has arrived as an elder. No. Neither do any of our other elders prop themselves up in that way. No, studying what an elder is and what an elder does should remind elders and all of us of how much of God's grace we need. So, disclaimer. Let's begin with the why question. Why does God give leadership? Think about the age in which we're living. Do people generally like authority? No. And sometimes they dislike it for good reasons. But in general, there's a disdain or at least a distrust for authority and if that's the case then there will also be a growing indifference toward authority structures 
So yet alongside those things, a, a disdain and distrust for authority and an indifference for authority structures, also exists a desire for community and fellowship. In fact, most Christians would acknowledge that these things are important, that they need some kind of fellowship or community. At the same time, many are indifferent toward the church, especially toward structures in the church. So look at any sociological data. People are lonelier and more individualistic than ever before. But that's not because they don't like the idea of community. No, people are fine with being around one another. It's because they don't like the idea of authority. And that keeps them from actual community. One author captures the potential thought of a modern person like this. I will gladly hang out with you so long as you don't tell me who I have to be or what I have to do. Friends, the problem is that you can't have community with that attitude. You can't. The same author goes on. To claim interest in Christian fellowship or even the church while paying little attention or heed to church structures is like claiming to love family while paying no heed to differences between parent and child or husband and wife. Part of what makes a family a family are those roles. And an important part of a church are its various roles or offices. So all this, distrusting, uh, not trusting authority, dismissing authority structures, it's not a new phenomenon. It's not unique to our age. In fact, we could trace it back all the way to our most distant ancestors. It's fundamentally, what did Adam and Eve do? They threw off God's authority over themselves and placed themselves there instead. So for all the bad press about authority and leadership, and in light of our prevailing attitude toward those things, why does God give authority and leadership in the first place? Well, two reasons. First, God gives them because our lives without authority or leadership would be chaotic and cruel. Our lives would be chaotic and cruel without them. Friends, consider just the storyline of the Bible. Genesis, what happens after Genesis 3, after the fall of man? Turning against God's authority only led down to the passing down of the disease of sin. The story of humanity is the perpetual cycle of sin and its destructive consequences. You just look at the storyline of the Bible, of chaos without authority and leadership. Well, not just, you don't look at the Bible for this. You just see the logical consequences of rejecting authority outright. A world with no authority or leadership would be a world where people do whatever they want without being restrained. It would be a world with no traffic laws. It would be a world where there are no rules and games. It would be a world where there are no parents in homes. A world where there is no God. What would come of this kind of world besides chaos and tragedy? So why does God give authority and leadership? He gives them not just to prevent chaos, but also to lead to our flourishing. To lead to our flourishing. Any authority and leadership expressed by people 
especially by those in the church, is meant to pattern the goodness of God's authority over us. That's what makes bad human authority so bad, because it lies about what God's authority actually means. So friends, we should recognize when people in this world abuse authority, because they are lying about what God's authority means. But that does not mean we can automatically be suspicious of all authority outright. Because God intends good authority to empower, to uplift, to give life. Think of God's authority over us. He created us. He gave us boundaries and he gave us a job to do. It's when we went away from his authority that we went into death. And we can think of examples from our own lives, of people in our own lives who are authorities over us. The teacher who made us a better student. The coach who made us a better athlete. Hence, that's God's intention for good authority. That's what David, who himself ran the gamut on how well he exercised authority, that's what he meant in 2 Samuel 23. So when we think about leadership and authority structures in the church, we have to remember that authority and leadership are meant to keep us from chaos and lead to our flourishing. We have to remember that Jesus gave authority to local churches, giving them the power of the keys of the kingdom. We see in Matthew 18, the power for gathered churches to recognize who are those who actually believe in Jesus. We use the analogy of handing out kingdom passports and removing them when necessary. Churches do this well. Churches do their job well when they submit to the ultimate authority of God's word and as certain individuals among them lead them in that task. So, do you see? Leadership in the church, or the offices that are prescribed in the New Testament, we'll get to in a second. Leadership in the church helps us to do the task Jesus has called us to and has authorized us to. Namely, to represent him and to recognize others who do the same. Leaders in the church are by no means perfect, but God intends them to be gifts to the church. And we can see how this is the case just by a sneak preview of what leaders are called to, why they are gifts to the church. God calls leaders to equip fellow believers for ministry and Christian living. What does that mean? A lot of things. First, it must mean that we need to be equipped for Christian living and ministry. God calls leaders to provide oversight, so that must mean that we need some kind of oversight. God calls leaders to shepherd and protect fellow Christians. So that means we must need to be shepherded and cared for. Now, this is not to say that all of us do not have equal status before God on the merits of Christ, that we are not all equally saved. Yes, the gospel has begun. It's worked in us. We are saved. We are justified. But the gospel's work is not yet complete in us. We're not all the way without sin. So the Bible indicates that until we get to heaven, one of the ways God helps us 
One of the ways God grows us, sanctifies us, matures us, is through leaders in the church. Who are they? Who are the leaders in a local church? When reading the New Testament, we find descriptions of how local churches were governed. And over and over again, we find two different offices. That is deacon and elder. Deacon and elder. We'll look at both of those in turn. Uh, First, we'll look at deacons. One of the first descriptions of this office comes in the book of Acts, chapter 6. I believe that's on page 914, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, this red Pew Bible in front of you. Acts chapter 6. And the word there used for deacon, diakonos, carries the sense of a servant or service. In fact, the passage we read earlier from Matthew, when Jesus tells the disciples to love like he loves and lead like he leads, Jesus says literally that the greatest among them is to be like a deacon. So we'll read the opening part of Acts chapter 6 and see if we can discern some kind of job description for this position. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of, of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So, from this passage, we can discern at least three things about deacons. First, we see what they were called to do. Namely, care for the physical needs of the church. In this case, It was facilitating care for widows who were being neglected. Second, we also see that their task, although physical and practical in nature, had a spiritual benefit. It had a spiritual benefit. That is, it promoted the unity of the church. Notice the decision to appoint deacons. Where did it come from? It started with a complaint. It was a complaint from one group in the church, Hellenists, that their widows weren't being cared for and the Hebrew widows were. So here we have potential division in the church between non-Jewish Christians and Jewish Christians. This is crisis mode here. And so deacons are appointed to a physical and practical task, but that task answered the complaint of this church. It promoted the unity of this church. Third, we can see in Acts 6 that deacons supported the ministry of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And it's not that elders did not want to or should not have helped to address the situation with the widows. It's that it was too big of a problem for them to handle on their own. And it was taking them away from their main task. So what did they do? They got help. The church appointed deacons in part so that they could free up their elders to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So from this passage, from others, such as the qualifications for deacons given in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
we find that the church carefully chose people for this position. These were not people whose only quality was doing grunt work. These were those who were faithfully following Christ. So then deacons are tested and approved servants that a church calls to take care of physical, practical needs, which in turn promotes the unity of the church and supports the ministry of the elders. So just as a, a side note to this, who, who is qualified to be a deacon? Well, they are tested and approved servants, full of the Spirit. And given the nature of this office, being an office of service, not of teaching, given the examples of those like Phoebe, a woman who Paul says in Romans 16.1 to have held this office, and given the history of the church on this topic, our church believes and has practiced that women can serve in the role of deacon. So this is who deacons are. Just in light of this description, I'll ask you a couple things. What are the physical and practical needs here at Old Oak that you could help with? Sure, at physical, talking about the facilities and all that, we could use help with that. What about among people, among caring for people? What about caring for those older among us? What about those caring for those younger among us? Could you invest time? Could you invest conversations? Can you do this without the title of deacon? Yes. So that's the first office. The other office that the New Testament describes is that of elder. The New Testament uses several different but interchangeable terms to describe this same office. These terms include elder, pastor, and overseer. All these terms are used to describe the same office or position. So we read, to prove this, we read earlier in Acts chapter 20. Paul's farewell address to what verse 17 says of that chapter, to the elders of Ephesus, the elders but then, in verse 28, Paul says that these elders are also, what? Overseers. Interchangeable. To throw pastor and shepherd into this mix. We're going to turn to 1 Peter 5, which we'll reference a couple times. I think it's on page 1016. 1 Peter 5, you look at the first two verses. And here, Peter writes to who? He writes to Elders. And he calls himself an elder. Notice he does not call himself a priest. But that is a topic for another day. He writes to elders as an elder and tells them to do what? To shepherd. He tells elders to do the work of a pastor. So the point is, that churches in the past and still today can divide leaders in the church into a hierarchy of sorts, making two or more classes of elders. That's not what the New Testament indicates. All pastors are elders, and all elders are pastors, and so forth. And so, also, you'll, you'll hear that I'm saying elders with an S, plural. That's because it's the pattern of churches in the Bible to have multiple elders in one church. Same position, multiple elders in one church. Now, it's the case that certain elders will have more influence. It's the case that certain elders will devote more time to their work. 
In fact, Paul indicates this in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. He says that if the church could, it should set support certain elders so that they can work full-time for the flock and give themselves over, especially to the tasks of preaching and teaching. Still, the elders who the... um, Excuse me. The elders who the church supports financially are fundamentally one in the same position as all the other elders. So, I am much as much of an elder as my dad, as Don, and as a, and as Dean. I do not have more authority than any one of them. I do not have more leadership. I, I am given over to devote myself. I have more time to spend doing this work. But this is the biblical pattern. Now, there may be one with more influence, but they all have an equal position. Think of it like volunteer and paid firefighters. When they go to fight a fire together, they face the same flames. But besides the biblical pattern of a, what's called a plurality of elders, multiple elders in one church, it's just plain wisdom behind this. It's just plain wisdom. It spreads the load. Not, it, one guy does not have to carry that whole load of a church. It allows for a variety of gifts. Think of our elders here. They complement me. That complement with an I and an E. Uh, they complement me uh, and make up for weaknesses that I have. Multiple elders get to support one another in the, wor- in the work. Having multiple elders does not let one voice dominate a church. So here, looking at leadership of the church, what the New Testament describes, deacons, elders, who they are, we'll get into what they do. But who should be elders? Who should be elders? This is an important question to ask. Let's read the qualifications for elders given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll find it on page 992. Page 992. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in the temptation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. There have been thousands of books written on these seven verses. Probably too many books, in fact. Um, so that means we're going to camp out here for probably the next, I don't know, hour and a half. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Uh, some brief things right off the bat. Uh, who are these elders? Well, we can see that Paul is describing candidates who are men. Candidates who are men. You can read the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 2. 
where he indicates that the pattern of leadership in the church should follow the pattern of God's creation. This is not to say that men and women believers do not share equal worth and standing before God as those who have been saved by grace alone. No, they share equal worth, equal standing. It is to say that within that equal worth and standing, men and women have different complementary and both vital roles to play in the church. Who the elders are. We see also that they are those uh, qualified to be elders. They should desire to do this work. That's what verse 1 opens with. And a desire should be expressed more with just words. That desire should be backed up with actions, with their heart, and with their attitude. They should show that desire basically by doing the work of an elder without the title of elder. Well, finally, we can, look at, we can dissect each one of these qualifications. But one that a lot of people have a question about is husband of one wife and talk, discussion about children. If Paul makes it a requirement to be married and to have kids in order to be an elder, then he would have been disqualified himself. And you know who else would have been disqualified? Jesus. Uh, so, the point is, it's not a requirement to be married and to have kids. Rather, marriage and family are natural grounds for assessing a man's ability to lead. Side note. You read all these qualifications. Read verses 1 to 7. And what do you find that's remarkable, one theologian says? What's remarkable about these qualifications is how unremarkable that they are. Besides being able to teach and not being a recent convert, all of these other things are said to be true of every Christian. So this is not some super class of Christians. And what does this show us? What does it show us that these qualifications are really unremarkable? Well, it shows us that an elder should model a life that is exemplary for other Christians. That is, an elder is one who has a good grasp on the word, who is able to lead on that basis, who has a good grasp on God's word and the gospel, and his life backs that up. Will he always back it up perfectly? No. But when he doesn't, he is also one who models how to be teachable, how to repent, how to confess his sin, and how to grow. So, inventory. The plane is on its descent. We've seen why God gives leadership, who the leaders in the church are, and we'll close by looking at what the leaders, specifically the elders of the church, are called to do. Be some overlap between these, and we can probably find more in the Bible, but we can organize these responsibilities of elders into three different categories. Equipping, leading, and shepherding. Equipping, leading, and shepherding. Start with equipping. To, to do that, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I did not find the page numbers in advance. I apologize. So I'm working on the fly here, and I will do my best. Um, 
977. Thank you very much. Elders are called to equip. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Turn to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So remember what we said earlier, that the gathered congregation possesses the keys of the kingdom. And let's pretend for a moment that these keys are not to a house, but to a car. I imagine any car that you like. Maybe it's an Italian sports car. Now, if the elders have authority to teach and are told to equip the saints, then their job becomes teaching the congregation how to drive the car of Christian living and ministry. So the differences between elder and member is not of class, but one who is recognized as a particularly effective driver and is able to teach others how to do the same. Called to equip. So elders equip primarily through preaching and teaching the word. We grow in our maturity as Christ, in Christ as we hear and heed God's word. Jesus' high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, he's praying to the Father before his death, and he's asking God requests. He's praying for his own people for whom he is about to die, and he asks the Father to do what? To sanctify them. How? By truth. And what does Jesus say is truth? He says, your word is truth. So the word is the means of our growth. And elsewhere, it's called our spiritual food. So then elders learn, can take notes from eager moms. Yes, eager moms who want to see their children grow. And it's true of my mom still to this day. I swear every time I eat with my mom, she takes more food than she intends to eat in order that, so that she can give me some of her extra to make sure I am eating enough. And thank you, Mom, for doing that. <laughs> Elders make sure that those under their care are fed with the Word of God. And they make sure that they are growing and they want to see the flock entrusted to them eat more. So elders equip through their entire way of life. Everything that they do. What do we do to the glory of God? Trick question. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Everything, anything that we do, do to the glory of God. So friends, we should be doing this with one another helping one another to see how we follow our Lord in every area of life. And elders are charged in particular to model how to live out the Christian life. So we strive to model how to pray when we pray publicly. We strive to model how to read the Bible when we teach and preach. We strive to model through our witness how to share the gospel 
We strive to model how to care for others, how to approach work, how to approach family life, how to confess sin, how to have accountability, and the list keeps going. There's a reason that Paul said, follow me as what? I follow Christ. So us elders want to grow ourselves, and we need to grow still. We want to grow in how well we equip you all for the work of the ministry. But let me ask you something. Let me ask all of us something. Is part of your motivation of coming to church gatherings to be equipped, to be trained? Do you want to be trained for Christian ministry and living? We want you to get behind the wheel. And though things may be bumpy at first, we want to see you drive, and we want to see more and more good drivers. So what are elders called to do? Next category, elder responsibilities, is leading or providing oversight. Start with two verses. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So it's clear from these passages and others that God calls elders to lead and provide oversight for their fellow brothers and sisters. But how are they to do that? Overlap again. Elders lead only as they preach and teach God's word. Again, we see the centrality of this. Elders exercise leadership only as they are led by the scriptures, only as they proclaim truth, only as they prayerfully respond to God's word. There's a reason why Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to instruction. There's a reason why Paul charges Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, because elders lead only on the basis of the word. Again, overlap. Elders lead by example. Leadership in any arena cannot be effective if what leaders say is not backed up by what leaders do. Why else would Paul tell the elders in Ephesus to pay close attention to themselves? Why would he tell Timothy to watch his life and doctrine? Because he knew what Peter knew, who said in 1 Peter 5 that the elders were to be examples for the flock. Elders lead by example. Elders lead by serving. They lead by serving. We read in Hebrews 13 that God calls Christians to submit to their leaders. And that may be a tough verse. But nowhere does he call leaders to command or force the congregation to submit to them. Nowhere does he do that. No, elders must lead by teaching by persuasion, by example, by humility, by service. 
because they have a reverent realization that the people to whom they are charged to care for are not their own. They are bought with the price of the blood of the Son of God. Elders are not those who want to amass power for themselves. They are those who want to use their position for the good of others. That's the model of Jesus. That's what we read in Matthew 20. When Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So leading by serving is the model of the cross. So what does it look like when a congregation is led? To overlap some with equipping, it means that they are equipped and guided to make good, biblical, wise, and loving decisions. How to bring members in well and see members out well. How to recognize new leaders well. It means that they have an overall posture of love and trust toward their leaders. And praise God, this is true here, which makes it a joy to be a pastor here. It really does. And it's a reminder that no one can ever be worthy of full trust. People say that trust is earned. Friends, that can't be true. Or at least it's only half true. The only person worthy of full trust is the Lord himself. So that means trust, in some respect, must be given. It must be given. And it's given because we trust not in people, we trust more in the Lord. That the Lord will be faithful in giving the gifts that his church needs. So an overall posture of love and trust doesn't mean you can never disagree with, with an elder. But it does mean you should have a good reason, like with any disagreement in the church. It doesn't mean that you should, um, you should not assume the best from elders. No, you should assume the best from elders, just like any other member in the church. It does mean that you talk to them kindly like you would with anyone else. If necessary, though, there should be pushback, especially in one area. The book of Galatians. Paul charges the young Christians there to sit in judgment of any preacher, even himself, he says, who preaches any other gospel than what they had heard. Friends, that means you sitting out there if you hear me preach a gospel that is not Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived perfectly and died substitutionarily and rose victoriously, and we are called to repent and believe in that. If you hear me stop preaching that gospel, if you hear me preach contradictorily to that gospel, you should push back and you should fire me. Do that for the health of this church. Do that for my spiritual good. Elders are called to lead. Lastly, elders are called to shepherd and care for the people for whom they are responsible. As one who was told by Jesus after he had denied him three times to feed his sheep, Peter, in 1 Peter 5, can write uniquely about the duty elders have to shepherd. We read in that chapter, beginning in the first three verses. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, 
not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being an example to the flock. Elders are called to shepherd. Again, we find overlap because elders shepherd the congregation through preaching and teaching the word. They want their sheep to grow. So that means they will make sure the sheep eat their spiritual food. As we can testify, some meals are going to be better than others. But by God's grace, we want you to be fed. We never want Old Oak Bible Church to go hungry. More, more overlap. Elders shepherd and care for the congregation by their example. God calls all of us to have hearts that care and love for one another. But elders in particular should model that shepherd heart that's ultimately in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. Elders shepherd and care for the congregation through prayer. The book of James calls elders specifically to pray for those who are sick, a practice that we all should do. In the passage we looked at about deacons, we saw that the elders devoted themselves to do what? To the ministry of the word and to prayer. Prayer is vital for the Christian life. And it's all the more vital for an elder's life. Prayer acknowledges that we are not sufficient in ourselves, but desperately need God's strength, wisdom, and love. It's through prayer elders shepherd the flock to which they are charged because they acknowledge that they cannot do this task in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own power. They acknowledge by being men of prayer that ultimate care comes not from themselves, but from the good shepherd himself. Elders shepherd. They do that by being watchful for the sheep. Again, they do this knowing that these sheep are not their own. They strive to have the heart of Jesus, the good shepherd in John 10, and care both for the congregation as a whole and for individual members of it. So when sheep go astray, they go after them. They are the ones who need to have the hard conversations for the spiritual good of individual sheep. They are the ones set apart to do the hard things. They protect the sheep by leading them in how new sheep are brought in, by taking charge in the membership process. They protect the sheep by helping them know who is among them and overseeing how they are fed. They should be aware of what's being taught among them, what food their sheep are eating. So a congregation that is shepherded and cared for well is one whose needs are heard, is one who is prayed for, is one who is fed well, and one who is protected. So you see those benefits when elders in God's strength are doing things they're called to. It's a gift to the church. It's God's kindness. It's God's means of protecting us and helping us to flourish Who is the greatest man to ever live? Besides Jesus. Clarify. Jesus himself 
said it was John the Baptist. And what was the mantra of John the Baptist that he offered as he faded from the scene? He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is, when he began to saw, to see Jesus' ministry, he was fine. That's what he was there to do. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. So faithful elders, just like faithful Christians, have that same mantra. They know what Paul knows, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians, that none of us has died for our own sin. No elder, no church leader has died for your sins. No, only Christ has done that. Only Christ is preeminent. Only Christ is Lord. Only Christ is Savior. So we all have roles to play in Christ's body. And we all have value. But the only way any of us, especially leaders in the church, the only way we do our job well is if the result of our work is that others are more impressed with Jesus than ourselves. He must increase. Let's pray. God, we, we need your help and your grace always to apply what you have said in your word. God, we pray that you would keep this congregation, keep this church from chaos. Keep this church from division. And positively, God, we pray that you would flourish Old Oak Bible Church and that you would use many means to do that. One of them being loving, humble, faithful leaders. God, help us to apply your word in this way and we will only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we only pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.